1: Hey, audience and listeners, this is James Kandasami with Achieve Wealth True Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Ali Pullman from California. Ali, did I say your name correctly?
2: Yeah, yeah, you nailed
1: it. Awesome, awesome. Ellie is a sponsor who owns like 2,000 units as a a GP and LP. And as as a GP and as an active operator, she owns like almost 770 units asset under management, almost $100 million in assets. And she focuses a lot on Texas, Florida, and Georgia, all the states that are opening early. (laughs) yay (laughs) right so and she's in california right now is california opened
2: not at all i i think um so i live in santa monica it's part of the la county oh um and we're one of the last counties to actually reopen so orange county they've reopened their economy a little bit so you can sit at restaurants got it here it's kind of a ghost town you can't do anything
1: got it yeah. got it yeah that's awesome that's a complete difference between a a business friendly state and uh, you know a non business friendly state i guess but that's okay exactly yeah Ellie, welcome to the show. Why not you uh, tell our audience about things that I would have uh, missed out about you? Uh,
2: Sure, James. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been in real estate for over a decade now. I've experienced 2008. I was not an investor back then. I was a commercial real estate lawyer, and um, I've learned a lot from my Clients' mistakes, especially you know, being aggressive and not um, not conservative, and what that can do to you in times of recession, and that um, turned me into a very very conservative operator and investor. Um, I, I I'm basically originally from Israel. I was born and raised in Israel, and I moved to the states about six years ago. I um, went to MIT and got my MBA degree, and shortly after started really capital and decided that hey, you know, I I've you know, I was in commercial real estate law. I also did property management back in Israel. Now I've came full, you know, full circle and investment in multifamily properties was the one the thing that I wanted to do. I saw a lot of potential there. Um, especially the 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 resilience of that asset class is what drew me to multifamily, mainly that that's the main reason. Among other many, you know, good reasons, and uh, yeah, that's what we do. I mean, we we buy Class B properties in A and B areas. We like value add deals, like many other operators, and for you know for a good reason. Uh-huh. And we're very hands on when it comes to operating and managing properties. And uh, as you mentioned, we invest in Texas, Florida, and Georgia. They reopen the economy. Probably will know several months from now if that was the right decision to do it now, um, but it, it definitely helps, you know, to to with collections and uh, with leasing activities, as you know, le- as what we see, you know, today.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're living in a really two great worlds in the California with a nice weather and a good investment world in, you know, Texas, uh, Florida, and Georgia, right? So that's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, let's go into uh, details about your, your deals of this, you Now, what you have, like, you know, like the 700 units where you are the operator, right? When did you get started? And uh, I mean, what was the aha moment that when you were the lawyer, when you were a lawyer, commercial lawyer, what was that aha moment say that, okay, I'm in the wrong profession, I better go to the other side?
2: Mm. Um, well, pretty early on, I remember that at some point I was um, with um, you know one of many many meetings because lawyers love meetings because we not actually really. you know and make I said, money doing not, <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, and uh, one of the many meetings I was sitting there uh, was a round table, really big you know conference room, and my clients were they were um, actually developers and they were building apartment buildings in actually in East Europe. And I remember thinking, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the table. I need to be them. I need to be the entrepreneur. I need to be the investor because, you know, as a lawyer, if you work, you bill every hour is a billable hour and you can make nice money. If you don't work, there's no income. There's no money unless you're, you know, a, a, partner and you bring some clients but that's a whole different story and I realized that I wanted something that was, has more cash flow stream and something that I can grow and when you're relying only on your own profession and, and you know um, 100% on on your ten fingers and what you do every day there's a limit to how much you can make there's a limit to how much you know your income is capped and in addition I found it more exciting to actually be part, I wanted to be, to take part of the action. I wanted to search properties. I wanted to speak with investors. And that looked a lot more interesting and exciting than representing them and negotiating with banks, creating contracts, negotiating with with vendors and contractors and subcontractors. I learned a lot, but I felt that I have some potential that it was not being fulfilled by doing what I was doing at that time. And that was my kind of aha moment.
1: Got it, got it. So did you, I mean, I know, you know, sometimes, you know, while we're doing our full-time job, right, professional, like, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineers, or in any W-2 job, any other W-2 job, I mean, sometimes you have that feeling, like what you said, right? Oh, I really want to enjoy something else, which is more interesting. Is it, I mean, as part of your you growing up, did you have certain things that, you enjoyed more when you grow up that you think resonates well with, you know, a real estate searching and operating real estate?
2: Um, Growing up? No, not really. I was, uh, I, I grew up um, pretty poor actually. And so I didn't see a lot of investors around me in Uh buying a house, you know, your main residence was the biggest thing that I could think of at that point. Um, It only came through education after I went to law school and through, you know, kind of learning about real estate from during, you know, my career from observing what's happening around me. But as a kid, there was nothing that could really tie me to real estate at that point. It was way too early.
1: Got it. So that's very interesting. What about these deals that you bought? Can you talk about the first deal that you bought and what are the challenges that you had uh, on that first deal? And how many units was that?
2: Yeah. So I I think for every first deal, there's always, you know, kind of chicken and the egg. You don't have experience as a multifamily operator. So, you know, you need to kind of convince the the broker to give you a deal even without experience. And how do you speak with investors and bring capital if you don't have that experience? But if you don't have, if you can't convince them to work with you, then how are you going to get your first deal? So for me, the way to kind of bypass this uh, this hurdle was to partner with someone that had more experience than me. And through that, I was I basically my lack of experience, specifically in operating properties, was not the main focus because then I I was working with someone who was more experienced. So that was one way. And I know a lot of young syndicators and aspiring syndicators, if that's the the path that they're taking. You can also, I I also see syndicators are just, you know, they, they just find a deal and they manage to basically work with a small group of investors that, you know, they, usually it's not a huge deal. It's not a large deal, but they're able to do it. And I, you know, I have a mentoring program today. I teach people how to do what I do and it works. And I believe in that method because I also had a mentor and I paid someone to teach me everything. So I'm basically not, I'm not going to work with investors' money and learn and, you know, make mistakes, you know, throughout the way. Now, mistakes are inevitable. I think we, we're all going to make them at some point, but you can definitely reduce the, the magnitude of the impact of your mistakes if you're working with someone that has more experience.
1: Got it, got it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, people don't see how much money we spend or how much time we spend to learn from others, to shortcut your growth, right? Your mm-hmm. development. Right? There's no such thing as we came up on our own, right? I mean, there's always a mentor yeah. or something that has driven us to get faster, to get somewhere faster, right? Especially in multifamily investment, which is a multi, multi dollar investment, right? And it's not Mm -hmm. easy for anybody out there to just go and do multifamily. So let's talk about some of your properties right now during COVID-19 right now, right? So how's the property performing? Can you give us some uh, numbers and uh, performance and, you know, how did you guys do it, et cetera?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, back in March, there was a lot of uncertainty and we didn't know what Mm -hmm. to expect. Um, Part of it was kind of the media frenzy that was basically shouting, tenants are not going to pay. Um, you know, There's going to be a huge default. And we weren't scared, but we we're definitely concerned because we just didn't know how hard our properties are going to get hit. And we decided to be proactive pretty early on. So during mid-March, we came up with a plan. We basically created a kind of a payment plan and um, with we tenants that lost our jobs. And so basically allowing them to pay in installments throughout the month. And we created early bird discounts. So basically during March, if you're going to pay for April, you know, for April before April 1st, then you get, you know, $50 off um, of your rent, for instance. And we had a lot of basically a lot of um, tenants that took advantage of it. And what happened is that some of them actually lost their jobs by April 1st, but they already paid us in advance. So that was a way to secure at least some of the collections. And um, that was only, you know, that was part of, of um, you know, making sure that collections are going to be solid. We were trying to think creatively how can we increase income? with our pot, you know across the board with the properties and I know that many sponsors right now they they stopped renovating units because usually you renovate a unit you you know invest three five seven thousand dollars and then you put it back in the market hoping you can rent it and we didn't really stop we basically switched to to renovation on demand so we have the model unit that is already renovated and then we show tenants you know, the virtual tour of the renovated units in a classic unit. And we say, you have a choice. Either you you can go with a classic unrenovated units or for a hundred or $200 premium, you can get the renovated unit. And just last week we, have, we had three new leases and they all wanted renovated units. So it takes us about 10 days to renovate it. So we, we're still making those renovations. We're still making more money. We're just not renovating without having someone that is willing to pay for that specific unit because we still don't want the unit to sit out there, you know, and and not being rented and just be vacant. So that was another aspect of trying to boost income as much as possible. And we aggressively cut costs. So only, you know, maintenance requests that are only required maintenance were carried Um, we, we kind of negotiated, opened all the contracts with all the vendors, landscaping, even insurance and started renegotiating. And, you know, we were looking for ways to save, you know, every dollar we can save was good for us. And we were looking at the, you know, numbers by the end of April and April was the first month of you know, of, of COVID when it comes to multifamily, cause March everyone already paid before we knew that COVID kind of uh, is an issue. And surprisingly, we actually made more money during April, um, our co- than compared to March, our collections were around 99.5% and our cash flow actually increased compared to march because we saved on costs so much and we actually collected we were fine and then may came and i think the trend is pretty much the same we're tracking right now we're speaking it's may 27th and we're at around 94 95% collections so it's a little bit lower than the month of april but we're we still have three or four more days uh, until you know the end of the month so every day we're collecting more and more, you know, money from tenants and our property managers are knocking on doors, sending text messages, um, and, you know, calling tenants and really very, very proactive in order to make sure that we we collect everything. And um, in addition to all of that, there's always going to be those who cannot pay. And we have, of course, on each property, we have those who've lost their jobs and we basically decided that those who were struggling and were good tenants before covid we're actually going to try and help them out so we gave away uh, basically gift cards to help them pay for the groceries walmart gift cards to those who were who were you know good tenants before covid and now they're just struggling they can't pay or they made us partial payments because you know a we made good money when times were good and they were a big part of our success, our, our paying tenants. And the second thing, is, I think there's something a bit, you know, humane about trying to help those who are struggling right now. We also, you know, hope that that would help them give a higher priority on paying their debt once they're back, you know, to work and, and they're making money. Um, but definitely the stimulus checks were helpful. The moment that we knew that they got stimulus checks, we made phone calls and some of them came and paid. If, if we weren't following up and just hoping that they will come and pay, some of them would probably use the money for something else. Um, now we have unemployment that is helpful and Texas, Florida, and Georgia. They're all, all of those economies are back, you know, they're reopening and, you know, many have re were rehired basically. And that also helps with collections.
1: Yeah, we are just checking all our residents on, you know, how many people are going back to work because that's important, right? So once July ends, the $600 additional from the federal government, $600 per week, mm. you know, it's going to be ending. So we are we are starting to check hey, how many people are going, got jobs and how many hasn't, so that at least we know how bad it's going to be after July, right? So you're absolutely right. I mean, people are paying. I mean, I'm sure, you know, your con- your concession or your gift card that you gave was helped, helped them to make a decision to pay the rent, right? So, but I am I mean, aren't we so surprised and, and delighted that people are paying rent with that, all the laws that they have, that they have to follow, right? We don't have to threaten them with evictions. We don't have to threaten them three-day notice and people are still paying, which is good and this is good, absolutely good for us, right? Uh, you know, it just reiterates uh, multifamily asset class, uh, you know. Food, shelter, and safety is very important. And, and they can't go and spend anywhere else. They can't go for a vacation. They can't go for a movie. Uh, they have to pay for shelter and food. And maybe they buy a, a massager, like one of, what, one of my residents did, right? So <laughs> a massage chair and some people bought new cars. There's a lot of people buying new cars because there's so much deals going on on the car. But the good thing is they're still paying the rents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you own your own property management company?
2: Uh, No, we actually hire a third party company, and you know they're they're pretty big in uh, in the industry. They uh, they manage over forty thousand units. Got it. And that's why kind of you know early on we we realized that we're good at finding investors, finding deals, and managing the asset. Our core, you know, um, focus is not. Property management, especially since I'm here in California, and this is the the great you know match between a company that sits you know in Atlanta, for instance, they know the market inside out. They have people there that are sitting in the office and, and helping collecting leases and signing uh, you know collecting rent, signing new leases. And we're almost on a daily basis we're in touch with them since COVID started. Um, before that, it was probably two, maybe two and a half times a week, you know, on average. And now it's almost every day, multiple times a day. So we're very, very hands-on. And and I couldn't be happier They're actually doing a great job.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Did you find any resident that goes to the property management company completely? Like they don't want to talk, they don't want to... Yeah. Have you seen that?
2: Yeah, we always have those. We always yeah, have yeah, I those. do have that too. Um, <laughs>
1: right so.
2: Yeah, it, it, inevitable. But uh, thankfully, it's a very marginal... Phenomena. You don't, you don't have five or 10% of your tenants just ghosting on you and, and disappearing.
1: Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah well, there's always small a small percentage of people mm-hmm. does not even want to take a free money given by the uh, cities, right? Like in Texas, I mean, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, I'm not sure about Houston, I'm probably they have done it. They did give a lot of assistance to the residents who can't pay. I'm not sure in Florida and Georgia, did you see that? I mean, did the government or city give out any assistance?
2: Nothing that I nothing okay. out of the ordinary besides um, you know stimulus checks and unemployment.
1: Yeah, I don't know. There was there's a lot of programs in Texas that give uh, assistance to residents who can't pay, who lost job, and all that. So so yeah, we did take advantage of some of the uh, program because you know. Yeah, you know, whatever money we can get from the government to help out our residents who are struggling, I mean, the the more flush we make them right now, it's going to be better later on, right, for the next mm-hmm. few months. So we, we are going ahead and do that. So uh, what about the value-add strategy that you do on your deals? Uh, what what worked the most? Uh, what's the most valuable value-add have you seen?
2: Usually it's a unit interior and, you know, you, you don't have to go all the way and make a beautiful brand new apartment there are a few things that are an eyesore for tenants Uh usually i mean a freshly painted you know unit that that's a must um but you know in many cases uh replacing the carpet with vinyl flooring is what we do Uh, we keep the you know in the bedrooms we keep actually the the carpet because tenants don't really care about that and uh-huh. it saves us you know cut the costs at least by half sometimes you know usually it's just the the normal things um black or stainless steel appliances um uh painting or or you know the the cabinet doors in the kitchen um maybe backsplash new lighting um, so and sometimes we don't we pick and choose we don't do all of them so there's a really good market research that goes into it before we start doing anything. It's very tempting to say I'm going to spend five or six or seven thousand dollars I'm going to make a beautiful you know apartment, but sometimes you're in an area where people cannot pay for you to have a decent ROI, or they're totally fine if the apartment is is you know, it looks good but it doesn't have stainless steel appliances, it has black appliances. So we do market research, we actually call all the other comps and we look at the pictures of their renovated units and we understand what's the scope of the renovation around us and how much they're charging and be, as a premium. And, and based on that, we know what tenants like. It's also a conversation we're having with the PM, the property manager, and they tell us, yeah, in this market, they're not going to pay you $30 more if you're going to give them a unit with stainless steel appliances and not black appliances, but they, you know, they really care about the carpet. And and so that we kind of adapting to the market and we're adjusting the scope of the renovation based on the demand and the ability to pay for all those upgrades.
1: Got it, got it yeah i mean that's absolutely right uh, you want to look at what the market can support right not do random yeah. random uh, renovations right and, and 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 a lot of people have failed when they move from one city to one city and i've seen people move from this city you know they're so used to spending 5000 a dollar in one city and they go to the next city and they try to spend the same amount of 5000 a dollar and it doesn't work right so just mm-hmm. so interesting on how the demographic is able to support it and and not, right? So that's interesting. Uh, what about uh, deals? How do you underwrite deals? When What what kind of sniff test do you do mm-hmm. when a deal is given to you? Like today, let's say somebody's sending you a deal. Uh, but before I go there, are you expecting prices to go down in multifamily post-COVID?
2: Yes, but not in the immediate future and not as much as most people expect, I don't think there's going to be 20, 30% discounts um, for several reasons. One, as you, you've mentioned, collections, we're, we're doing pretty well with collections. I know some properties are collecting around 70, maybe 80%. So not everyone is doing great, but we're not talking about a 50% drop in collection that can basically you know, justify you know, fire sales. On the other hand, and not on the other hand, but on, in addition, you have forbearance. So for 90 days, owners who are in trouble now don't have to pay the lenders. So they're not motivated to actually sell the properties at a discount. The, most of the discounts that I've seen today of deals that were closed during April and May and early May were around, I would say, five, 4 to 5% discount. The problem is that there's a huge gap between seller's expectations and buyer's expectations and buyers, you know, many, many buyers want to buy a property at a 15, 20%, you know, know, um, decrease in price, um, a price cut. And sellers are saying, we're doing well. Why would we sell you at a discount? Now what they're failing to understand many times is that, Collections is only one part of the equations. So, even if you're collected more than March, there's another two other main things that have changed. And this is also answering the second part of your question uh-huh. about how we underwrite deals. First and foremost, the debts, debt has changed significantly from March. So, if in March it was easy to get 70, 75, maybe 80% LTV. Right now we're talking about 55 to 65, maybe 68%. So when you take a property with the same income, let's say NOI is the same pre and post COVID, but you're now, you have a deal that you only get 55 or 60% LTV versus 75% pre COVID. Guess what? Your returns are completely different. And that one part, I think this part sellers don't fully understand And then in addition, when it comes to our projections, pre-COVID, you know, we were using softwares that predicted, had predictive models about vacancies, concessions, rent increases, and we use those, you know, numbers along with, you know, it's combination of those projections, conversation with our property management company and how the property was basically performing up to that point and came out with a number that makes sense. Now, regardless of what those models are showing us, I'm comfortable buying if the deal makes sense with very little 0% rent increases in the first 12 months. And that also affects the price that we can pay because obviously you have, you know, uh, uh, the first 12 months, you can't really raise, you know, prices, raise, raise rents. Even though I have to say that in some of our properties, we are able to lease only with zero rent increases. But on other properties, we're, we just raised rents about 18% higher during April because we were offering renovated units, what I've talked about before, renovation on demand, and people are willing to pay a little bit extra. So during April, we're actually increasing the, the rents on some of our properties by almost 20%. So even though that is happening, I can't really trust that that would happen with the next property. And so in order to be conservative, this is what we do. We increase also the bad debt or um, delinquencies and um, increase concessions more than what we usually do, you know, pre-COVID. So all those factors alongside with the debt, basically, you know, that, that affects the the returns that we're looking at. And that's why no, the numbers, the prices that we're willing to pay for property, they're not the same like they were before COVID.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh yeah. There's other factors like you know the debt and uh, should, I don't know whether you talked about the uh, reserves that the uh, lenders are asking right now, right? On, oh
0: yeah. On the Fannie mm-hmm.
1: and Freddie that's gonna you know additional yep. cash out of pocket, which reduces your return, even though you're supposed to get back that money in the 12 months or 18 months that you know after the deal has been meeting certain threshold, right? So that's, that's very interesting. So let's go to a bit more on the personal side. After you're starting doing your real estate business, right? I mean, is there any proud moment that you had, uh, you know, that you're really, really proud of, right? That, you know, it takes you until the end to forget it. I mean, you can't really forget about that particular moment that you're really proud of yourself. <laughs>
2: Um, well, we had uh, one property that, um, when we got it on a contract, it was 98% occupied. And after 90 days, we were, or or I think 80 days were close to the closing date. And we were asking for the latest rent rolls and T 12 because we're always, you know, looking at the new financial information. And I'm looking at the rent roll that the seller is sending me. And I'm staring at the numbers and I'm not sure I'm seeing it right. But apparently, the property is about 80% occupied. Huh. And he didn't tell us anything. He was hoping we're not going to notice. It happened in a, over a few weeks, and we about less than a week before closing. And we just find out that the property that it was 98% occupied is 81, 82% occupied.
1: So it dropped within a and couple of months?
2: Within a couple of weeks.
1: A couple of weeks. <laughs>
2: yeah. So, and and we we're starting to kind of scratch our heads and say, what just, what happened here? And we, sl- we kind of discover an interesting story where basically the seller was self-managing the property. He thought he was saving money by doing it himself he left a lot of money on the table because all of his rents were under market. So when we took over, we just increased rents by $85, um, you know, almost 10% increase without touching the units because we had to push the occupancy back up because the, the we knew it was under market, but he was self-managing and he was really he wasn't really trading his employees and his uh, tenants the way they should have. And at some point when they heard about the sale, the entire team just got up and left and they all just quit. And he had to bring a third-party company last minute. Third-party company comes in, they're looking at the property and they say, okay, um, those who are a little bit late, um, you know, paying their rents, we're just they are just started eva- evicting people. Wow. There was a woman, one of the stories that I've heard, a woman that came back from the hospital after not, you know, she gave birth and, they evicted her because she wasn't paying on time because she just got back from the hospital. So they, they basically said, we have very strict rules and we're, we're basically, you know, you know, we have the, the set sort of rules. And so if somebody, if we don't think they should be here, they're not going to be here. And that's how they ended up at 82%. And the owner didn't, I, I don't know if the owner even knew, I think he was hands off at that point. He felt that, you know, He's all, almost selling the property. And we didn't know if we can close because A, I, you know, I had investors. that knew that they were buying a property at 98%, not 82. The first thing we did was obviously, you know, communicating that with, with everyone and saying, This is the situation, and we also have a plan of what we're gonna do. And I wanted to give you know investors the opportunity to say, Hey, you know what? It's not the type of investment I want to be part of, but nobody did. Um, we renegotiated with the seller and said now the property is not worth as much as it was three months ago, and we also had to negotiate with Fannie Mae because now the property is not stabilized, and so Fannie Mae only gives you a loan if the property is stabilized, meaning 90% occupied for 90 days. And this is not a stabilized property. Ugh. And um, we worked with Northmark. They were a great team and they went to work for us and basically said, we, we can vouch for those sponsors or great operators and convince Fannie Mae to keep the loan even for an unstabilized you know, property. So... That's, that was one of the, I think, more interesting deals <laughs> that, I've, uh, that I was part of, um, and, but it, it turned out to be fine. We, you know, our property management company were able to you know, bring the occupancy back up to 90% within uh, 45, 48 days, and the property is you know, doing a lot better, and collections are good, and it's, uh, it, it's interesting when you're in that moment, you're not sure how the property is going to perform but when you have a really strong team, it makes things, it, it makes all the difference. And yeah. I was blessed to be working with a really, really good team.
1: Got it. Got it. That's very interesting because it's, yeah, Fannie and Freddie, they expect uh, the property to be stabilized until they close, right? I mean, they, they'll keep on asking mm-hmm. you for rent-roll until you close. So it's very important that that's a big uh, drop to 82%, right? That's crazy, right? So, yeah, uh, Thanks for coming for the show. Why not you tell our audience uh, how to get hold of you?
2: Absolutely. So you can um, find more about me if you go to ellieperlman.com. And um, I also have a free guide for you. If you want to look at um, a deal, there's basically a free guide you can download on my website uh, that will basically teach you all the things that you need to look at when you're evaluating a deal, all the crucial deal components. And um, that's basically how you can reach out to me. If you wanna email me, my email is ellie at Awesome,
1: awesome. Thank you very much for coming onto the show. I'm sure we had uh, tons and tons of value from your, you know, from your knowledge and our discussion. Thank you.
2: Thank you, James, it was fun. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.